Hello loves and welcome back to Your Hero's Quest. Today we're going to go on a little adventure to the realm of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and explore some facets of the Arthurian legends. When you think of King Arthur and his knights and the medieval period, what comes to mind for you? Let me know in the comments. Whether or not King Arthur was a historical king and his knights and the round table actually existed, or if he was just a mythical hero king is truly still up for debate today. But as Galadriel says in the prologue and opening of the movie Fellowship of the Ring, history became legend, legend became myth. So Arthur and all the happenings of the round table were occurring in the fifth century, but not written about, at least not that we have, until the 1100s with Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which historians have cast out as just a pseudo history because it discusses Arthur and Merlin and it incorporates magic and all sorts of other things that just can't be possible <laughs> to academia. We also don't know where Geoffrey got his information from. However, he was written about prior in 828 in Historia Britonum, but he was just cited as a war leader and not King Arthur, so we're not sure if it's the same person. So he's not written about until the 1100s in this historical way, and then in 1190, a author named Chrétien de Troyes writes the very first Grail romance, and this completely catapults the story of King Arthur and his knights. This story is called Percival, the Story of the Grail, and it is the earliest recorded account of what would become the quest for the Holy Grail. Though in this work, the word holy isn't used and the grail is actually presented as a serving platter. And it also comes out with a lance and a candelabra that are equally as important. Chrétien dedicated this work to his patron, Philip I of Count of Flanders, and he claims to be working from a source or a book that Philip had given to him, but we don't know what that source or book is because he did not say. So perhaps there is a deeper historical line to King Arthur and these tales and historical fact, but truly we'll never know. What we do know is this story was left unfinished because Chrétien died before he could complete it, and four different authors made four different continuations of the story to bring it to its completion. After that, all sorts of other authors took up this story and made their own spins on it, created more characters, and just expanded the whole realm of Camelot. Now, whether or not these stories were based in fact, they did in fact greatly affect society of the time. So again, this was in like the 11, 1190s, so the very late 12th century and into the 13th century, what started to flourish in courts from France into England was this idea of chivalry and courtly love, knighthood and quests. And so literature really bled into what was actually happening. And there was this huge spiritual uh, revolution at the time as well. And this is when all the great, beautiful cathedrals are built around Europe. So chicken or egg, we're not sure, but we do know that this really did inspire the culture of the time and has absolutely trickled down to our time today. We may not view romance as this courtly love or have the same chivalric 
values, but I think it be, they are these ideals that have been embedded into us in Western society. Other sources say that the Grail legend may have come from Celtic shamanic rituals in which the initiate had to pass certain tests to attain an elevated or visionary state. So who were the Knights of the Round Table and who was part of this amazing collection of stories. I just wanted to kind of go down the list and introduce you to the various knights and players in this game. So first up is of course King Arthur himself, and he is the son of Uther Pendragon and Igraine. And that story is a little bit weird. Uther fell in love with Igraine, who was already married to the Duke of Gorloi, and Merlin helped Uther magic himself to look like uh, Egraine's husband and then he entered the castle and slept with her and that's how Arthur was born and unfortunately there's a lot of this that goes on in uh, these stories which is obviously very unethical but it also perhaps was destiny because King Arthur is King Arthur so he is actually then raised not knowing his royal lineage he's raised with Sir Ector and Sir Ector's son uh, Kay, who becomes a knight of the round table later on. And after Uther dies, the kingdom is left without a king and it's kind of in chaos. Merlin comes with the sword in the stone and says whoever can draw this is the rightful heir and king of Britain. And of course, Arthur is the one to do that. And then he is installed as king, his rightful place as a pretty young, uh, young boy. Later on, of course, he marries Guinevere and her father gives Arthur the round table as part of her dowry wedding gift. So first up, we have Sir Lancelot, also known as Lancelot du Lac or Lancelot of the Lake, because he was uh, raised by the Lady of the Lake in the fairy realm for much of his childhood. He is the very best knight, and of course the most well-known knight of the round table. He is not only the greatest swordsman, jouster, most skilled, but he's also the most noble and the most chivalrous. Unfortunately, we all know the story, he falls in love with Queen Guinevere, and of course that's his best friend's wife, which ends up leading to all these events that cause the disbandment and destruction of Camelot and the round table. Next up we have Sir Gawain. And this is King Arthur's nephew. He's Lancelot's best friend and also, also known as the greatest knight. Very skilled, very chivalrous. He's best known for his own story, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And that's a great little tale in its own right. Next, we have Sir Galahad. He is the son of Lancelot and Lady Elaine, uh, an illegitimate son. And this is another story of glamour used by Merlin, he makes Elaine look like Guinevere so that Lancelot would sleep with her, and then they have Sir Galahad. Lancelot is not too happy about this when he finds out, but Sir Galahad was the only knight in later legend that achieved the Grail Quest, so kind of another destined um, childbirth, I guess. When he shows up to court, he sits successfully in the Siege Perilous, and this was a seat that Merlin created at the round table that was empty and was reserved for the knight who would achieve the quest. The reason the table is round is because no knight is better than the other. There is no head of the table, and no matter what your upbringing or who you are, when you're a knight of Camelot, and for Arthur, everyone's on the same level, same playing field, and it just created this beautiful fellowship. 
So Galahad was said to have all of his father's strengths, but none of his flaws. He is also the grandson of the Fisher King, who is that king that lives at the Grail Castle. And he is the purest knight, known as the perfect knight in courage, courtesy, gentleness, and chivalry. And he is the one that is allowed to see the Grail. And when he gets this vision, it's really a vision of God, and he ascends into the heavens. Next up is Sir Geraint. Sorry if I said that wrong. He also is kind of best known for his own tale, uh, Sir Geraint and Enid. He's the husband to Lady Enid. And his reputation suffers when he kind of gets distracted by his love for her and focuses more on her than his knightly duties. She calls him lazy and he is pissed that she said that. So he says she's unfaithful. So they end up going off on their own little adventure together where they're faced with a series of trials and this gives him the opportunity to prove himself as a knight and her the opportunity to prove her faithfulness and love for him. What happened here is the question was raised of whether his love for his wife weakened him as a knight. And the story proves that no, of course not, because Enid's assistance, aid, and companionship along the way on their adventures prove that the divine feminine actually raises a man to his knightly stature and raises a man to his full embodiment of the divine masculine. So that's a really cool tale of a sacred union. And they end up living happily ever after. So we love that for them. Next, we have Sir Percival. And of course, he is the Percival of the very first Grail story, the very first Arthurian story. And he also was questing for the Grail with Galahad and Sir Bors, who we'll see next up. He was the original one to succeed, but replaced in later stories with Galahad. And of course, we actually don't know the ending that Chrétien had in store for him because he never got to finish it. But he is of noble birth and was raised in secret in the woods by his mom, but has no idea of his lineage. He's a very gracious, innocent, and naive because of this. And he sees some knights of the round table riding through the woods one day when he's like a teenager and is like, oh my gosh, I want to be one of them. So he ventures off to King Arthur's court, wants to prove himself, ends up on the Grail quest. He finds the Grail castle, but he fails to understand his task there. He sees this procession and he wonders, what is happening here? Like there's this maiden and this beautiful platter and he knows that it's something sacred is happening, but he doesn't know why. And it's on the tip of his tongue to ask what this means. But he doesn't because his mom and also his mentor had told him, don't ask too many questions and don't make yourself seem a certain way. It's not nightly. So he keeps it to himself. And later when he wakes up the next day, everyone's gone. The, there's no like sight of the castle or anything. And he runs into a maiden who's weeping and she says, you know, you messed up. You, were, you didn't ask who the grail served and that would have healed the, the king and it would have healed all this stuff. So what I took from this is that he allowed his ego to get in the way of his intuition. He had this like <clears throat> burning desire to ask this question and the reason he had that, that feeling was because it, he was meant to. This happens to us all the time on our own paths and our own quests, second guessing ourselves or 
maybe seeking advice outside of ourselves, even though we have the answer within us already. It strengthens our own intuition when we start to really listen to our own voice and our own truth, because it often is that whisper from the divine and it is our guiding force in life. We have all the answers we need. It takes him many more years to actually then refine the Grail Castle. He does end up in the continuations asking the question, whom does the Grail serve? And then this heals everything and happily ever after. But it could have been done much sooner had he listened to himself. Next we have Sir Bors, who also goes on the Grail quest with Percival and Galahad. He is a chaste knight. He's sworn a vow of purity. But we've got another one of those unethical stories, the daughter of King Brandegoris, fell in love with him because he is extremely handsome and she uses a magic ring to force him to love her. Now his vow is broken. He is the only knight to return to Britain and King Arthur's court after the girl quest and then he tells the tale to everyone. He is Lancelot's cousin and when things go down in the court with Lancelot, Guinevere's affair being exposed, Sir Bors fully supports Lancelot and actually even goes to hang out with him in exile after he's exiled from the kingdom. So pretty cool guy and yeah. Next we have Sir Bedivere. He's a loyal companion throughout the Arthurian legends and he's the one that is actually with King Arthur when King Arthur is delivered his fatal wound in the last battle, the final battle, Battle of Camelon by his treacherous nephew, Mordred. He's at King Arthur's side at his death and transports him to the Isle of Avalon. And King Arthur's dying wish is for Sir Bedivere to take Excalibur back to the Lady of the Lake where he got it from. Bedivere is sad, saddened by this and he hesitates twice because it's such a valuable sword. It's a magical sword and it's so valuable to Britain, but he knows he must fulfill his king's wish. He tosses it into the lake and a hand rises up from the lake, the Lady of the Lake's hand and grabs Excalibur and it goes back to Avalon where it was forged. So then Sir Bedivere retires to a hermitage to live out the rest of his days. And he is later joined by Lancelot and some of the other knights. He was truly loyal and one of the first to join in the fellowship and also noted for his extreme handsomeness. Next up is Sir Tristan. He's best known for the 12th century chival chivalric romance Tristan and Isolt. And he was also an excellent knight of the round table. He's the nephew of King Mark and King Mark sends him to go pick up Isolt, who's gonna be his bride. Of course, when he meets her, they fall deeply and madly in love and it sort of ruins the whole marriage for Mark. And that's a whole nother story, but he's best known for that little tale. Just another tragic romance in the land of King Arthur. Then we have Sir Kay. He was that uh, foster brother of King Arthur. They grew up together. He's a very tall and formidable warrior. According to some legends, he actually had mystical prowess, was called one of the three enchanter knights of Britain. Others say he had a cruel and violent temper. He was basically a bully, but King Arthur is guardian and one of his most faithful companions. Some of his supernatural abilities that he was said to have was that he could go nine days and nights without needing to breathe or sleep. And he had the ability to grow as tall as the tallest tree if he pleased. He also could radiate a supernatural heat from his hands. 
and it was impossible to cure a wound from his sword. So watch out for Sir Kay. Now we have Sir Gareth. He is Gawain's youngest brother and also King Arthur's nephew. He's a great defender of King Arthur. He actually acts as Lancelot's page for a while and then is later knighted by Sir Lancelot and he's totally devoted to Sir Lancelot. He's loyal, brave, and a prime example of chivalry. Unfortunately, Sir Lancelot accidentally kills him. When the affair of Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere is exposed, many knights call for Queen Guinevere to be held accountable and she is set to be burned at the stake for her adultery. Of course, Sir Lancelot's not gonna let this happen, so he rushes in and saves her. And as he's rushing her out on horseback, there's this like just chaos, confusion, and a skirmish, and he accidentally kills Sir Gareth in the confusion because he doesn't recognize him. And he also kills another brother. He is actually devastated by this because of course, Sir Gareth was like his own son or his own younger brother. He brought him up into knighthood and he truly didn't know that was him. But Sir Gawain won't let Arthur accept Lancelot's sincere apology for these deaths of his brothers. King Arthur is persuaded to go to war against Lancelot for this. This is what causes the downfall of the kingdom. It causes this split in the round table and really just like the disbandment of the brotherhood. Next we have the other brother who was killed, Sir Gaheris. He and Sir Gareth actually married a pair of sisters on the same day. That's kind of fun. And he was a steadfast companion and friend. He actually killed his mother for some family drama we'll get into later with a different night. Moving on to Sir Lamorak. He is the son of King Pellinor, who was a great knight in his own accord. And according to some legends, the brother of Percival. He's one of the strongest, fiercest, and most brutal of the Round Table Knights. He's noted for his deeds of prowess. He excelled at jousting from a very early age and once fought over 30 knights by himself and bested them all. So his father, Pellinor, had killed King Lot of Orkney in a duel. King Lot is Gawain and his brother's dad. So those brothers retaliated and killed King Pellinor in a duel. Lamorak is not happy by this. He's like, how could you do this to me? You are my brothers of the round table. And so to get back at them, he started an affair with their mother, their widowed mother, Morgoz, who is King Arthur's sister. Ugh, the family drama, the family drama. So Geharis catches Sir Lamorak and his mom in the act and beheads his own mother on the spot, but he lets Sir Lamorak go. Later, the brothers band together and they end up murdering Sir Lamorak. And it's very unknightly of them because they ambush him in the forest and it's like four against one and you don't do that as a knight. And then they end up lying about what they did and it was evil Mordred who lit quite literally stabbed him in the back to kill him. Lamorak's cousin attempts to avenge his murder by poisoning Gawain at a Queen Guinevere dinner party. A different knight drinks the poison and Queen Guinevere is accused. <sighs> but Lancelot fights as her champion and the truth is revealed. So Lancelot to the rescue once again. The last knight we're going to mention is Sir Agravain and he is the fourth brother of Gawain, Gareth, and Gaheris. He is known as one of the most handsome knights. He's also a very skilled fighter and strategist. 
However, he is arrogant, sharp-tongued, and very much in contrast to the how his brothers are. And so basically he's super hot, but a total asshole. And he's the one who in some of the accounts reveals the affair between Lancelot and Guinevere, which sets off that string of events to the round table downfall. He is just full of malice, villainy, and jealousy. And he's really jealous of his brothers and tries to kill Gaheras a few times throughout the stories. So there are many, many other knights that figure to the round table that are part of all the legends that pop in and out throughout the stories. But those are kind of the main ones that get talked about the most. So let me know in the comments who your favorite knight is so far. And I just wanted to comment on the Grail uh, legend part of this because the story sort of starts to take that more Christian overtone uh, where it started as a pagan story really and the grail is transformed into this holy chalice that has to do with Joseph of Arimathea and Jesus and you know the sort of seeking of it is this salvation that you'll get and you can only see this if you are the most pure of heart and you have not sinned. Lancelot actually goes on the grail adventure but because of his affair with Guinevere he only gets a glimpse of the grail but is then cast out of the grail castle. However, we love that almost because Lancelot is the best knight but also he's has these flaws and so it really humanizes him and it just shows us that every hero really does have a flaw like nobody is perfect. I mean Sir Galahad was but these knights are faced with trials and tribulations all throughout their adventures. They're pulled into fairy realm, they meet with glamoured witches, and they meet maidens who really tempt them into lust. And it's really a story of resisting temptations and resisting distractions on our quest and on our path and on our purpose. We're so full of them in today's day and age. Distractions at every turn. Our cell phones being the main one and, you know, getting lost scrolling on social media for hours is so easy. And even just watching Netflix or binging a TV show all day when we know we should be devoting that time to our business or reading or whatever. So the stories are timeless in that. And we can really see ourselves in these knights and in these heroes. The knights sort of encompass the whole spectrum of humanity and our weaknesses and also our really beautiful strengths that we have the power to overcome anything and we do on the quest to the grail on the quest to this spiritual enlightenment because really it's a spiritual quest that we are on to fulfill and we are going to be faced with many many challenges along the way but it's those challenges that really rise us to even the status of being worthy of achieving the grail. We are able to choose light again and again, even in the face of challenges. The quest for the grail, like I said, really is a spiritual quest. It's a quest for the meaning of life itself, the nature of the divine, and one's true purpose of living. As we can seek to mythologize our lives, I think that's how we bring myth back into the modern age, is by mythologizing our own lives, by finding the meaning in every moment, by taking moments of our lives as symbols to propel us towards that grail. And as we go deeper and deeper into the forest of mysteries, 
is when we get closer to the grail, when we get closer to our spiritual truth and our light and are able to voice that and just emit more and more light into the world. In this book, The Lost Book of the Grail, that I talked deeply about in my Fairy Accord episode, the authors say, myth is that which is the truest thing of all. It's the means by which we live fulfilled with understanding of our place in the world and with compassion. It is something that has never happened and is always happening. They also say that narratives usually unfold from beginning to end in order. That we find such a thing in the Grail legends is due to the way it deals with the primal questions evoked by this key myth. Why are things like this? What caused this? Whom does the Grail serve? What will cure these ills? The cause of unheeded or violent actions upon the world cannot be healed, we are told, as long as the world lasts. The solution then is to step outside of time in order that the restoration can be made which is precisely what a myth does, empowering us to be active in situations that have become stalemated in time. So whether or not the grail actually existed, we are still 1,000 years later after these tales were written. We're outside of time because we are on the grail quest ourselves. We are still seeking to fulfill this mission in our own lives. And if we can stay on that path, then we too will achieve that divine union. Let me know in the comments if this little exploration into the Arthurian legends resonated with you, what you think of them. Do you think they still have a place in our world today, 1,000 plus years later? With that being said, leave me a like and subscribe if you want more of this content. And I will pull a Hero's Journey Dream Oracle card to conclude our little quest into King Arthur's realm. Oh, this one wanted to come out. Stop and take in the view. Take stock of the treasures you've earned. Whatever we are waiting for, it will surely come to us, but only when we are ready to receive it with an open and grateful heart. The grill. You might notice you get stuck in strive and drive mode. Forget to pause from time to time, look around and take inventory of the blessings and treasures you've learned and earned along the way. Regular stops to take in the view are a must for sustaining steady progress over the long haul. You have accomplished a great deal, but the test, the real test is whether you can accept the blessings that are a result of your hard work. Can you stop and be filled with appreciation for all you've accomplished thus far? It is now time to be showered with blessings, whether you are deep in the valley or on the mountain peak. Revel in the rewards of your journey thus far. Quell your worries about the false notion that a reverie will make you weak, complacent, or an egomaniac. In fact, take heart knowing that delighting in love and appreciation will give you the strength to journey further, thus multiplying the gifts you can share with others. Mantra, there is no there, there. There is only here, here. I think that's beautiful because as we quest, we can get so caught up in it and in wanting to get to the destination of that grail or of whatever thing we are on route towards. But it really is about the journey because it's all the things we learn along the way and that we experience along the way that are preparing us to accept and receive that gift and that goal. So I hope that this served you and thank you so, so, so much for watching. And I will see you in the next episode. Much love.